1: Good morning, Christ Fellowship family. How are we doing? Are we awake this morning? I know we're coming back from spring break, but we good, right? All right. I know there's a lot of parents that are happy right now because school starts on Monday. Kids get get ushered back into school, and everyone's like, yes, I got time to myself now. I see a lot of parents going like, yes, I know. (laughs) All right, well, my name is Eddie, for those of you who are here with us for the first time. And as always, it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you here this morning, sharing God's word. And to be honest, I'm really, really excited about this morning. I'm really excited because, as always, we have an opportunity to glance into God's heart. We have an opportunity to look into the window of God's soul and see what God is all about. And we get the chance to do that every single Sunday. And that is the most amazing thing that we had. we had this great opportunity to do that. And one of the coolest things about it is that we got a chance to see into that window last week on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. We got to see how God loved us so much that he sacrificed his one and only son for each and every single one of us here to remove sin from our lives and create that bridge, that connection that we get to have that relationship back with our Lord and Savior. The good news about all of that is that God is not limited to just last Sunday. He's not limited to just resurrection Sunday. God wants to do that every single day of our lives. He wants to connect with us. He wants us to look into that window. He wants us to get to know him more and more and more because the, no- the more that we get to know him, the more intimately we will follow him. The more we get to know him, the more faithfully we will serve him. And the more we get to know him, it could be the difference between us teetering on whether or not we want to be committed to him, to being pushed over the ledge, to being completely sold out for him. And that all happens by just getting to know who God is and accepting him into your heart and following him. And we get that opportunity every single day. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. I don't know about you. I think it's amazing, right? So what we have been doing in order to get to know him better, we have been faithfully journeying through the Bible to learn his story. See what I did there? It's not history. It's his story. Yes. Got it. Nailed it. All right. And we've been doing that by journeying through the Bible book by book, and we've done it since the beginning of this year in in January. Oh my! I forgot the begin. I forgot the first month of the year. Oh my Lord, pray for me. Uh, we've been doing it since January, and we've been journeying all throughout up until now, and we are up all the way to the book of Esther. The Est- the book of Esther is 17 books in from the beginning. If you open up your Bible, count 17 books in, boom, you'll land right at Esther and. Just so that we're all on the same page as we continue through our journey and as we talk about Esther, I have a couple of quick facts that I just want to give you about the book of Esther. Some of them you may know, some of them you may not, but I'm sharing those so that we're all on the same page as we move forward. All right, the first quick fact about Esther. The book of Esther is only 10 chapters. And when I say it's only 10 chapters, I mean they're very, very short chapters. You can, in essence, sit down and read the entire book of Esther in about maybe an hour or less. If you're really dedicated, you could probably read it in 30 minutes. If you'd like to take your coffee, have an empanada with some cheese or whatever the case is, it'll take you about an hour and 15. But it's only 10 chapters long. The period that is covered in the history of Esther is between 483 BC and 473 BC. It only covers a period of only 10 years. And the cool thing about the book of Esther, if we've been kind of paying attention, is that the book of Esther takes place between Israel's first return to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. If you guys were paying attention to Jensen Daniels' message. That's how she said it. Zerubbabel. And the second return of God's people with Ezra. So between the first return and the second return, Esther takes place in between that time period. If you want to know more about that. Go back a few weeks into our YouTube archive, look up Ezra and Nehemiah, and you'll know more about that. The next quick fact, the author of Esther is unknown, but the Bible is the inspired word of God. So the author is Jesus, just so you know. The type of book, the type of book is actually really cool. The type of book is considered historical romance historical romance. Now, I'm not talking about, like, your romantic comedy or anything like that. No, 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 no. It's more like like history told through romance, kind of like a la Shakespeare, or like your TV telenovela that has the doctor whose husband has a twin who fell down the elevator shaft, who has three cousins who turned out to be the husband of so-and-so, and and three kids later there's an empire or something like that. I don't know. Telenovelas are weird. It's just the way that they are. I'm Hispanic. I grew up. It's, it's, It's what my mom watched. I forgot which one that was. All right. So it's, uh, it's called historical romance. That's what it's categorized under, historical romance. The purpose and the theme of the book, the whole purpose and theme of the book of Esther is to show God's providence when it comes down to his promises. Not your promises, his promises. God's providence when it comes down to his providence. Uh, Now, I don't want to scare you with that word providence. It's a really big word. It's an SAT word. So I'm going to tell you what it means really fast. The word providence means this. It means protective care, divine guidance, protective care, divine guidance. And it's only really a term that's associated and used with God. You will never hear about the providence of Eddie. You will never hear about the providence of Mark or Jennifer or anybody else like that. You only hear about the word providence when it's associated with God. So what does that mean for you and me? That means that the book of Esther is meant to show us God's protective care and divine guidance as he carries out his promises to his people. And the cool thing about that is that it's not just limited to his people back then. It only doesn't apply to his people back then during that time. His protective care and divine guidance and his promises carries all throughout history to our current day and time right now. So his protective care, his divine guidance, his promises, it all applies to us, which is what makes Esther so cool. Now, the last curious fact that I have about the book of Esther is the one fact that differentiates it from all of the other books in the Bible. No other book in the Bible has this fact. So if you want to pay attention to anything I say today, pay attention to this one fact. The book of Esther has no reference, absolutely zero, it has no reference to God, it has no reference to worship, it has no reference to prayer, and it has no reference to sacrifice. Throughout the entirety of that book, God, worship, prayer, sacrifice is not mentioned one time. You would think, right, that a book that is in the Bible would have at least one reference to God, but it isn't so. But, before you guys get on me, that is not to say that the overwhelming presence of God is not in this book. That is not to say that the overwhelming plan of God is not felt throughout this entire book. And right off the bat, I think we can learn something very important here. Just because God is not obviously present doesn't mean he's not there. Just because God is not obviously present doesn't mean he isn't there. Just because God is not obviously present in our lives, just because God is not obviously active in our lives, just because it seems like God isn't doing anything for us at the moment doesn't mean he isn't working, doesn't mean he isn't moving. It doesn't mean that he is not active. Actually, this reminds me of something really cool that I read back in the book of John. And I'm going to go off on a small little tangent here. You see, in the book of John, Jesus, at this moment, is performing healing miracles on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day for the people was considered a day of rest. You weren't supposed to be moving. You weren't supposed to be doing anything on that day. You weren't supposed to be working. Anything that was considered work was not supposed to be done. The Sabbath day was a day where you were supposed to chill, hang out, maybe worship pray, be with your family. But any type of work was considered a big no-no. If you did work, it was considered a sin. But Jesus was healing at this time, and they considered that work. So the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders at the time, came up to Jesus, and they started trying to persecute him. They started trying to tell him things, and Jesus responds to them this way. John chapter 5, verse 17. Remember, you're supposed to be inactive and not moving on the Sabbath. And Jesus says this to them, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work. Say always. Always. Say always again. Always. Always. My father is always at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. God, Jesus, is always at work. Even when it doesn't seem obvious, when it seems like God is inactive, when it appears that he isn't moving, when the perception is that he is never around, remember, he is always at his work. We haven't even started the book of Esther yet, and it already has given us this golden nugget that we can apply to our lives. So remember, when it doesn't seem obvious, God is always what? working. He is always working. And we will get an opportunity to see that all throughout the book of Esther. So are you ready for it? You want to get into it? I don't know. I feel like I can just come back. You want to come back? All right, I'll come back. I'll come back. I'll do it. I'll do it. All right. All right. Our story starts in Susa. Say Susa. I just like the way it sounds, sounds so Hispanic. Susa. Right. Our story starts in Susa, which is the capital of the kingdom of Persia at this time. And we start our story with King Xerxes. King Xerxes is hosting this huge, amazing, lavish banquet, this party that is so big. And why? Because he wants to show off his riches. He wants to show off his kingdom. He wants to show off all the delicious delicacies that he has that nobody else has. He wants to show off his golden pillars. He wants to show off his gold. He wants to show off all of his treasures. He's a big show-off, actually, now that I think about it. That's what he wants to do. And he invites everybody to come to his banquet. Now, at the end of this huge banquet, after he's done showing off everything that he can show off, he realizes, oh, wait, I have a queen. I have a queen that is very beautiful. Guards. Guards. Summon my queen, and we get introduced to his queen named Vashti. Now, Vashti was very beautiful, but Vashti declines. She says no. Now, the word is not specific why she says no or why she doesn't want to show up for whatever reason. But the king wanted to parade her around so everybody can marvel at her beauty, but she didn't want that. So she said, no. So the king gets infuriated. He gets mad and he goes to his advisors and he tells them, what should I do about this situation? And the advisors tell him, take away her crown, take away her title and find a new queen. So the king agrees. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to go send an edict out, a decree through all of my kingdom that I'm looking for a new queen. Only the most beautiful girls are going to be qualified. So it goes out, and women start getting selected one by one by one by one. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. If you were a woman who was selected at that time, you couldn't just, okay, you got selected one day, and then the very next day you show up before the king and he looks at you. No, that didn't happen. There was a kind of law that had to happen. A woman had to go through 12 months of beauty treatment, not, be, not because she wasn't pretty, but because they wanted the beauty of that woman to be magnified to its maximum potential before they went before the king. And let's look at what it says in Esther verse 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, meaning his presence, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfume and cosmetics. That means that for 12 whole months, women got their hair did. They got their nails done. I'm from Elizabeth. I can say did, right? They got their hair done. They got their nails did. They were getting massages. They were getting all, you know, oil, seaweed wraps, whatever you want to call it, for 12 whole months. How many women here would turn down 12 months of beauty treatment? Exactly. You so saw how no hands went up? Guys, pay attention to that. 12 whole months of beauty treatment. That's cool. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Listen, girls, you go go ahead and get it. That's fine. Right? So at this point, enters Esther. Esther is one of the women that is selected. The word says that she was lovely in form and features, meaning that Esther was very, very beautiful. Esther, when she is first introduced in our story, she goes by the name Hadassah. Now, Hadassah means this. It means bride bride it means star, and it means myrtle tree. Don't sleep on the myrtle tree part. That's actually the most important part, not the star, not the bride. The myrtle tree part is the most important part because myrtle tree is a symbol of recovery and establishment of God's promises. So Esther's name, Hadassah, means recovery and establishment of God's promises. As you can see, right off the bat, God is already showing us something amazing about Esther. She was the cousin of Mordecai. Now Mordecai raised her. He's the third character in our story. We have the king, we have Esther, and now we have Mordecai. There's only four, so there's only one more, right? So bear with me for a second. Mordecai, she was the cousin of Mordecai, and Mordecai raised her as his own daughter. The word said she had neither father nor mother, which means that they probably died at a young age, and Mordecai took her on and raised her. And the story tells us that Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, for all of you who know me, I think every word in the Bible is important. Every period, every I, every comma, every crossing of the T, I think it's all important. So when I saw that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, I noticed that all throughout the book and mentioned it only once. And I just got to share this with you guys really fast because I think it's really important. Benjamin is part of the 12 tribes of Israel, but Benjamin was considered the smallest one. It was considered the smallest tribe. In terms of volume, in terms of population, in terms of all the important things that were going on at the moment with all of the other 11 tribes, Benjamin was considered the smallest one. Nobody really expected anything cool or awesome to happen from the tribe of Benjamin. But look at what God is doing. God is going to take two people from the smallest tribe, Esther and Mordecai, and do something spectacular. With them. And what does that tell us? That tells us something about God. It tells us that he can take anyone. Doesn't matter how big or how small, how tall or how short. Doesn't matter if you have high self-esteem or low self-esteem. The reality is this. God can use anyone. You don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the most well-read. You don't have to have all your ducks in a row or life figured out. You don't need all these degrees or fancy titles. You don't even have to be the strongest person. If God can take two people from the smallest tribe and do something spectacular and amazing with them, imagine what he can do with you, with each and every single one of you. It's amazing the things that God does with what people think is ordinary and seemingly worthless. God does the most amazing things with stuff like that. So as the story continues, Esther goes through her 12 months of beauty treatment. She goes through the 12 months of beauty treatment. She gets presented before the king. And as she gets presented before the king, boom, he falls head over heels for her immediately He doesn't even want to see any of the other women. He says, you know what? Get the crown from Vashti. She's no longer queen. She's out of here. Put that crown and give it to Esther. Make her queen and let's throw a huge party and celebrate. And they live happily ever after. Thank you. I'll see you guys next Sunday. No. The story is just beginning. After the celebration, after the celebration of Esther being queen and Vashti being kick off to the side. Four years jump forward. We don't know what happens in those four years. It just, boom, it just jumps forward. It's like a like a wormhole, so to speak. Four years go forward. Now, during that time of those four years, Mordecai would always go back and forth to the king's gate because he wasn't allowed in the palace, right? And he would have conversations with Esther. And during that period, we get introduced to our last character named Haman. Now, Haman If there was a villain in any story, Haman is the villain in this one. And you'll see what I mean in a couple of minutes. You see, Haman, during those four years, for one reason or another, he was elevated into a really cool position with King Xerxes. So much so that the king sent out an order and said that every time Haman passed by you, you had to take a knee like Tebow and pay him respect. You had to do it every single time. It didn't matter how many times he passed by you. If he passed by you this way, and then half an hour later, he came back, you still had to bow. If he passed by this way and said, oh wait, I forgot something two seconds later, and passed by you again, you had to take a knee and bow. You had to show him that honor and that respect. So one day, outside of the king's court, Mordecai is there, and Haman passes by Mordecai, and Mordecai doesn't bow down. He doesn't bow down. The the, the king's royal officials go up to Mordecai and they're like, Mordecai, why didn't you bow down before Haman? We know his position in the kingdom and this and that, blah, blah, whatever. But Mordecai stays silent and never gives an answer. Now, if you do your research a little bit, I'm just going to give you this really quick fact. Haman was an Amalekite. He was a descendant from the Amalekites. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus you realize that the Amalekites, that people, they were ruthless people who were against God, against God. God wanted his people to wipe them out, but because of the shortcomings, they weren't able to complete the task. So the Amalekites, they lived on, and they were always beefing, always beefing. So Mordecai, because of Haman's high position, knew that Haman was an Amalekite, and he was like, I'm not going to bow down to an enemy of God. Never bow down to something that goes against the word of God. Never surrender to something that goes against the word of God. So Mordecai doesn't take a knee. The word doesn't tell us that, but that's the reason why. So Mordecai gets infuriated. Every time he passes, I'm sorry, Haman gets infuriated. Every time he passes by Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't take a knee. So Mordecai decides to hatch a plan. He decides to hatch a plan. He finds out that, you know what, I want to kill this guy. I want to annihilate this guy. But then he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. He's like, wait, I'm I'm an Amalekite and he's a Jew. What is our purpose? To destroy all of this. So now he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, he wants to destroy his entire culture, his entire lineage, his entire race. He wants to take them all out. So he hatches a plan, and it starts with this. This, back then, this is actually a really, really updated version of it. This is called a purr, or a lot in some cases. Now, back then, we don't know much about how they looked, what they looked like, or how they were represented, but we do know a couple of quick facts about it, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it, so to speak, right? The precise size and shape of a purr, say purr, 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 the precise size and the shape of a purr is not known, nor the method by which they were cast. When they say cast, they mean how they were dropped, Right. But what is known and there'll be some pictures behind me of some really, really old ones. Right. But what is known is that they were either smooth stones or sticks and they had shapes and symbols that were carved into them that represented either numbers, days, months or any random piece of information that was assigned to it by the person who was using it. So Haman used the purr to determine what date he wanted to carry out his genocide, his execution. So he casts it, and the numbers came up to the number 11. So from there, he decided that in 11 months, I am going to annihilate Mordecai and his people. Think about this. God wants all of us, all of his believers, his people, his children, he wants us to live. He wants us to be living our life for him. And here you have one person who was coming down as an enemy, who wants to annihilate God's plan because God's plans involves his people from Israel. This is somebody who is going against the very plan of God. If I take out Mordecai and all the people, then God's plan goes Psh, finito. It's over with. So much tension in this story. It really is like a novella, I'm telling you. So Haman, after he realizes 11 months, after he realizes I'm going to do it, now he has to get permission, so he goes to King Xerxes, and this is what he tells King Xerxes in Esther verse three chapter eight. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, "There is a certain people dispersed among all the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. I love how he doesn't even mention that they're excuse me, I love how he mentions that they're not even Jews. He just says. Certain people. And that just shows us the deceptiveness of Haman. He doesn't want to tell you the whole truth. He wants to tell you only a little bit of the truth so that way you don't know all the facts so that way he can get his way. Don't be like Haman. Don't be like Haman. So he tells them they keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people. And the custom that he only really cares about is the custom that this guy's not bound down to him. That's the only custom he really cares about. They're different from all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So unfortunately, the king agrees. He says, you know what? Whoever these people are, Haman, I trust you. Whoever these people are, you have my permission. 11, 11 months from now, take them out. So he sends out posters. He sends out flyers. It's like a big ticket day parade of all of like, hey, listen, in 11 months, everybody in the kingdom know this. In 11 months, we're killing these guys. In 11 months, we're taking them out. In 11 months, boom, they're done. And these flyers, were, they were distributed to everybody. Everybody. There, was, there wasn't nobody who was like, oh, hey, just give it to this guy over here. No, everybody saw it, including Mordecai. So Mordecai sees that, oh, my gosh, in 11 months, not only me, but everybody else that, that, that is a Jew is going to be taken out. They're going to be done for. So the word says that there was weeping and wailing and cries heard from all of the Jewish people because they knew they could not withstand this assault. And Mordecai tears his robe Pours ash on his head and goes back to the king's gate where he would have conversations with Esther. And he's standing at the king's gate, weeping and crying and fasting. And one of Esther's servants is walking by and sees Mordecai. Mordecai explains to the servant everything that's going on. She goes back and tells Esther. And then they come back and they have this really cool conversation. And then one of the things that Mordecai wants to know is that can there be anything done? You are the queen. Can anything be done? Can you actually, can, you put, can, can I talk to the king? Can, can, you, can you tell the king for me that I need to talk to him about something? And Esther tells him, no. Listen, there is a law. And the law says that nobody is allowed to go before the king. Unless they are summoned by him. Doesn't matter who you are, even her. If you do that, if you just randomly show up to the king out of nowhere, you barge in the doors, you open up the doors, he's sitting on his throne. And you're like, hey, king, I want to have a word with you. And he didn't call you, and he has no idea that you were on the scheduled appointment, guess what he would do? Immediately, you're done. You're dead. That's it. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There was no compromising in that sense. If you showed up and the king didn't call you, immediately you were dead. The only exception would be if he extended a gold scepter to you. That's the only exception. If he extended his gold scepter to you, when you showed up at random, you were allowed to come to him. But if you showed up hoping for that scepter to come out and he didn't go like this, they would grab you and they would hang you. Behead you, cut your throat, do something, whatever. But either way, you were dead. And this applied to everybody. Nobody was the exception, including Esther. She was not the exception. She, just because she's the queen doesn't mean, hey, hey, hubby, what's up? How's everything going? You're dead. You couldn't do it. So Mordecai sends this message back to Esther because there's a sense of desperation right now. Listen, we only have 11 months. Something bad is going to happen to every single one of us, including you, Esther, because you are also a Jew. So Mordecai sends this message back to her, and this is the most famous verse in all of Esther. Esther 4, verse 14. Mordecai tells Esther, and who knows? but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Can you see God moving? Can you see it? And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Remember the meaning of Esther's name, recovery, and establishment of God's promises? I find it so amazing that God has placed her in such a position for such a time as this. That on the very verge of his people being wiped out, there is someone that has been properly placed by God with an opportunity to carry out his will. And I wonder how many people here, how many people watching online, I wonder if you realize yet that you have been properly placed by God. That God has properly positioned you exactly where you are because he sees so far ahead that he knows that there is an opportunity that is going to come down the pipeline for you, for you to do his will. And it's the very reason why you are where you are right now. It's the reason why you live in the city you live in. It's the reason you live in the town that you live in. It's the reason you live in the neighborhood that you live in, the house that you purchase, the job that you have, the family that you're a part of, all the relationships that you have. Do you think that's because of you? No, God has positioned you there specifically to carry out his purpose, to carry out his will. It's because God has put you there. It's because there is an opportunity coming. For some of us, the opportunity is already there. To stand up for those that can't stand for themselves. To show the love of Jesus in situations saturated with hate. To speak the absolute truth when it's needed against the lies of the world. To be the light, no matter how dark it gets. To be uncompromising with God's word, no matter how many people try to sway you away from it. To be completely sold out, to express your faith, to follow a God that died on the cross for you and your sins. To be completely unashamed of who he is. To speak out and say something. To tell those you love about this awesome guy named Jesus. No matter what. The cost. And when we take a look around at what's happening in the world through news and politics, it's happening everywhere. And believe it or not, it's happening closer and closer and closer to home. It's not just overseas anymore. It's not just in another state anymore. It's not just in another town anymore. Everything that the enemy is trying to do is happening closer and closer. And I can hear it ringing from the heart of God. That you have been called for such a time as this. I can hear it screaming from his heart. The opportunity is coming. For some of us, it's already here. How will you respond? Let's take a look at how Esther responded. Esther chapter 4, verse 15 through 16 Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, in my attendance, will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king unannounced. I will go to the king at random. Even though it is against the law, she knows this is something that you're not supposed to do. And this is the most second famous verse in all of Esther. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. Every opportunity of God has a risk, it does. I'm not here to sugarcoat anything. I'm not here to sit up here and preach lollipops and rainbows to you. I'm not here to sing around the campfire and sing kumbaya. That's not what it's about. I'm here to speak the truth. I'm here to preach the truth of God's word to you. And the reality is this. If I do anything else other than that, I'm being dishonest and I'm dishonoring God. Every opportunity of God carries with it a risk. Whether it's big or small, I have no idea. That's up to God and you. What the risk is. But every opportunity of God carries with it a risk. Esther decided to side with God's will in this opportunity, no matter what the cost. If I perish, I perish. Excuse me. Oh, that we would have a heart like Esther. I pray for every single one of us here right now that we would side with the will of God, no matter what the cost. Because when we put God's will ahead of our own, no matter what the cost is, great and amazing things can happen. Ways are made through oceans. I've seen it. I've read it. Let's look at what happens to Esther. Esther chapter five, verse one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. This is right after they fasted. Esther is going to go randomly before the king. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting On his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. Can you just imagine the setting right now? The king is on his throne. He's just chilling, going about the day, looks at his schedule. Am I supposed to see anybody today? Nope. If anybody shows up, take him out. And all of a sudden, his wife shows up, his queen. Can you imagine the feeling that Esther must have inside of her heart right now? She's already decided if I perish, I perish. But that doesn't take away the fact that she might be nervous. That doesn't take away the fact that she might be a little bit terrified. That doesn't take away from the fact that her knees might be knocking hard right now because she's sitting, she's standing, looking at him, filled with the fact that, you know what, I can die any second. All he has to do is just look at me and not extend his scepter, and I'm done for. She must be terrified right now. She knows the king didn't summon her. She just randomly showed up. She knows the rules. She knows the law, and she's breaking it. She knows that if the king doesn't extend the scepter, she's automatically executed. We can learn so much from her right now that regardless of emotion, that regardless of potential consequences, she doesn't let that get in the way of God's purpose She's still terrified, no doubt about it, but she doesn't let that override her calling for such a time as this. How many times, how many times have we let the potential consequences stop us in our tracks from doing what God wants us to do? How many times have we let our emotions hinder us from doing God's purpose. Sometimes the thought of what the outcome could be, it paralyzes us. I heard this a long time ago, that sometimes 90% of the things that we worry about never happen. But sometimes we let those things that could potentially happen, stop us from taking a leap of faith. We let it hinder us. We let it stop us. We let it paralyze us. I'm not saying that our emotions are not valid in moments like that. Of course, our emotions are valid, but we have to have more trust in what God has called us to than what our emotions are trying to take us away from. We have to have more trust in what God has called us to than what our emotions are trying to take us away from. Because if we go by our emotions, we will never accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. But if we put our trust in God, he will make a way. He will. Look at how he made a way for Esther. Esther, chapter 5, continuing off of verse 1, it says this. When he, the king, when he saw Esther standing in the court, He killed her. No. When he saw Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be given to you. Look at how God made a way. If we go by our emotions, we will never accomplish God's purpose. But if our trust is in God, he will make a way. The same way that God made a way for Esther after she placed her trust in him is the same way God will make a way for us if we put our trust in him as well. Because Esther was called for such a time as this, the king extended his golden scepter to her. I can just imagine from the beginning of time, I can imagine God working behind the scenes because what? God is always doing what? Working. God is always working. I can imagine God setting up the pieces. I can imagine him moving around the essential parts that needed to be moved around. I can imagine him looking and saying, you know what? If I make Esther for such a time as this, I know that the king is going to fall in love with her. I know he's going to extend the golden scepter to her. I know that she's going to do something amazing and help my people. So I need to create Esther. He did it all behind the scenes in an unobvious way. God knew what was going to happen. It may not have been obvious, but God was moving. The same way he is moving right now. You may not see it. You may not notice it. But he is moving around the essential parts around your life that need to happen. He is placing the proper things in place that need to be in your life for the opportunity. God did this in the most crucial moment so that his people would have a voice, Esther. And God is doing it again now so that his people would be a voice for him. Will you be that voice? As Esther is before the king, she tells him, you know what? I'm not going to give you my request right now. You're the queen. You're the queen. Whatever you wish. And she says, but instead, I would like to have dinner with you. I would like to have dinner with you and Haman two days from now. Whatever you wish my queen, dinner two days from now, and then you will give me your request. So Haman gets word that the queen wants to have dinner with him and the king. And Haman is like, all right, I'm in, baby. It's going to happen. He's all excited. He's very jubilant. He's high on his emotions right now. And after he hears of this and he's leaving, he passes by the king's gate. And who does he see? Mordecai. And now he's just like, all right, you know what? I'm going to have dinner with the queen. I'm going to have dinner with the king. You know, 11 months from now, this is going to happen. You know what? Hey, I'm so filled with rage right now, and I hate this guy so much. I'm going to construct a gallows 75 feet high, and I'm going to hang Mordecai from it. So the construction for the gallows begins. Two days later, the dinner happens. Mordecai is still alive. The gallows is being built. So at this dinner... After they sit down, have a couple of wine, you know, some pernil, you know, some nice rice and beans. It's, it's a Hispanic Persia. What this is, this is what I do, right? The king looks to Esther, my queen, what is your request? And she tells them that there is something that is distressing her, that there is something that has been bothering her, that there is a plan that has been hatched to annihilate her people and she is so saddened by it and she is stressed out about it. now check this out if something was distressing the queen the king would automatically be like what is you know, like oh my gosh something's wrong with the queen right now i got to do something about it because you know she's she's not happy happy life happy wife happy life right king's like, yo, I know this. This is true. And she's stressed out right now. So I need to do something about it to correct the issue. Because if I don't, something's wrong. So he asked, what is wrong, Esther? And, he tells, and she tells him everything. So then he's like, who is the man? Let me know right now. Shank him. Let me know who that man is right now. And I will take them out to relieve you of your distress. And she's like, thank you, my king. Haman, that guy right there. Him. This guy. Haman. Haman begs Esther. Begs her. He begs her. But the order was already sent out. The king was like, nope. This guy's dead. And in a twist of irony, the king's men, they come to Haman, they put a bag over his head, and they're like, We gotta kill this guy because the king said so. Well, how are we gonna kill him? We're we gonna stab him, we're we gonna bury him alive, what are we gonna do? And then some guy says, Hey, there's a gallows that somebody built right by his house, let's hang him from that. And they hang him from the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. God is always in the habit of using the things that the enemy tries to use against you for you in your favor. Whenever the enemy tries to plot against you, whenever he tries to plan against you, whenever he has things that try to come against your life, believe it or not, God already has another plan in mind that's going to go behind that plan and make it turn out for your benefit. But that only happens if our trust is in him. That only happens if our faith is in him. God is always in the habit of turning the bad things around for our good. I read that somewhere. I don't know where. I think it's in the Bible he's always in the habit of doing that now the order because the law was sent out that the people were going to die in 11 months the fact that haman was hung and that you know didn't matter the the king had already sent out the law so it was going to be carried out no matter what even if with or without haman so there's nothing the king could do about the law he couldn't rescind it but what he did do was that he wrote a new law saying that the Jewish people were able to defend themselves when this onslaught would happen. So the onslaught happened, the Jewish people defended themselves, and they survived, and they lived. All because of two people from the tribe of Benjamin, Mordecai and Esther, that God's promises were able to continue forward and be fulfilled. So at the end of the story of Esther, there is a huge celebration that is given. There's a huge party that is thrown. And they called it the celebration of Purim. Purim. They took the very thing that Haman used to dictate their annihilation. It is now used as a symbol of celebration. It is now used as a reminder of God's promises to his people. The same way God used the gallows that was meant for Mordecai, now Haman got it. The same way Haman used the purr to now to dictate their annihilation, God is now using it as a celebrate as a celebratory reminder of his promises, of his faithfulness of the things that he has told us that he would do. What an amazing thing God has shown us. And we can learn something very important from this. It doesn't matter how the world, it doesn't matter what your friends it doesn't matter your family. It doesn't matter how your enemies. It doesn't matter how your coworkers. It doesn't matter how your bosses, how your exes, how your acquaintances. It doesn't matter how any of them cast their purse. It doesn't matter how any of them cast their lot. It doesn't matter how any of them want to decide or make a plan against you. What matters more than any of that are the promises of God because those will stand above anything else that you could possibly imagine or think of. The promises of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, I'm going to share with you one of the coolest promises of God. I'm not saying Esther was thinking about this. I'm not saying this was the promise that Esther had in mind. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that I think this is one of the coolest promises of God. It says this, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. I'm just going to add in a little bit, even when it's not obvious. The Lord himself will go before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not Be discouraged. That promise he will never leave you or forsake you. That is God letting you know I am never going to abandon you. The same way I am not going to abandon my people to Haman's onslaught. If I would have abandoned, check this out. If he would have abandoned his people, if he would have forsaked his people, he would have forsook his people and left them to Haman's onslaught, this promise right here would mean nothing. It would mean that God lied. It would mean that he told something that was not true. But God straight up said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And he carried that all throughout his story. And those promises back then apply to us right now. They are not just for the people who lived thousands of years ago. They apply to every single person here in this room, watching online through our live stream. His promises will always stand. Doesn't matter the lot that is cast. This Lot. Don't look at it as a lot. Don't look at it as an evil plan. Look at it as the promise of God. My prayer is that every time you pick up a die in a board game, that when you see it, you're reminded God's promises. God's promises. When the opportunity comes, when emotions are running high, When the risk seems incalculable, when everything inside of you is trying to paralyze you, when the potential consequences start to pile up, remember, God is always working. He is setting up the pieces. He is moving the essential parts around. He saw this coming long before you were born. It may not seem obvious, but he is always moving, setting you up, and properly placing you for such a time as this. How will you respond? Will you lean on God's promises? Will you take Esther's example and apply it to your life, no matter what the cost? Or will you let your emotions stop you from carrying out the purpose of God? Can you imagine that? The journey of your life halted. Put on pause, stopped right in the middle because you let your emotions get in the way of what God is trying to do. You let fear overcome the faithfulness that God has shown you. You would still live life. You would. You would walk out these doors and you would live life like there was no big deal. But the, but the purpose of your life, the very thing that you would create it for would stop right there. Because we let our emotions stop us from the purpose that God is trying to do in our lives. Will you put your trust in him? Will you put your trust in his promises? Because if you do that, just like Esther, shaking in her boots, standing at the front of the king, she didn't know what was going to happen. But the king held out his scepter. And don't the, the king holding out a scepter was cool, but I can imagine God in the back of the king. Hey, hold out your scepter. I'm prompting you right now. God did that. The king didn't do that. God held out the scepter to Esther. That was God's doing. That was God's work. God made a way for Esther to be a voice when the opportunity presented itself, the important purpose and promise of God. That was Esther. How will you respond? I believe with all of my heart that God has called each and every single one of us here right now for such a time as this. You may not realize it, but I'm telling you right now, I feel it in my heart so deep that you are where exactly where you are right now in your life. You are exactly in the jobs that you are in right now. You are exactly a part of the families that you are a part of right now. Every single relationship in your life you are connected to is because God has put you there. He has put you there because he needs you to be a voice for him. To be the very representation of his heart to those that are around you. To show Christ without being ashamed. To show them what true love really is. To speak the truth. Among all the lies that the world is trying to bombard you with. You were called. You were called for such a time as this right now. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, my God. We know that your everlasting promises, my God, go from the beginning of Genesis to the end of the world, my God. We know that your word will always stand, my God. We know that your truth will always be spoken, my God. Right now, Lord, I feel... Feel a calling, my Lord, that you are extending a golden scepter to every single person who is sitting down in their seats right now, my God. And you are calling them, my Lord, to approach your throne, my God, to approach your grace, to approach your mercy, your truth, your love, my God, that they would be instruments for you, my Lord. That when the opportunity comes their way, my Lord, they would not shrink back. They would not hesitate, my Lord. They have counted the cost. They know what it would take, my God. But let your will, my Lord, let your will be stronger than their emotions, my God. Let your will, your love, your purpose, my God, override fear, my God. Let them, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen them, my God, that you would give them courage, my Lord, that they would stand for you, my God, and nothing else, my Lord, that they would take no knees to any Haman, my God, but that they would stand strong and firm, established, my God, in your word. And I pray, Lord, that when times get rough, because they will, that they would lean and remember Your promises, my Lord, because they are called for such a time as this. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch On Demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Google Play. Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.